0: Alright, tonight we start the study of a new book. Actually, a study of, of some new books. We'll be studying First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, the name pastoral epistles did not become popular until the mid-1700s. Actually, the first use that we can uh, narrow down of that term is from about 1705. Before that, they weren't known as the pastorals. But these three letters do speak of pastoral duties in the church, hence the name. They're written to two young pastors, Timothy and to Titus. But there's much more to what we call the pastoral epistles than just that. We will learn much from the epistles about how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, and more specifically, in the local church. Now, since the epistles of First and 2 Timothy and Titus are... Um, are have as part of their uh, function to tell us how to behave in the local church, we need to, we need to consider for a moment what the, what the local church is as opposed to what the church universal is. Thank you. The, the, when we see the term church, we have to determine in the scriptures which aspect of the church is being spoken of. There is the universal church. And the universal church is the body of Christ, the body of believers. Each, at the moment each person trusts Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, we are all entered into the body of Christ. We are all part of the church universal. In the universal church, there is no one in there that's, that's an unbeliever. And if you are a believer, you're in the universal church. Now there's also a second aspect of church that we call the local church. And it's this that both Timothy, or when Paul speaks to both Timothy and Titus, it's this that is in view. Now in the local church, we assume that the members of a local church are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They ought to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are not necessarily believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So while in the church universal, everyone in the universal church is a believer, or else you wouldn't be there in the first place. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 12:13, before by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And we know that this is an event that happens at the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But again, when Paul speaks here, he's speaking about how we function in a local church. This is an extremely timely study. This is not just for pastors. This is for pastors and the entire congregation. Sometimes people get this confused. I've I've heard it confused a number of different ways, but let let me see if I can illustrate this. Even if these were only commands to pastors, which they're not, but even if the pastoral epistles only concerned commands to pastors, it would overflow into how the congregation behaves as well. Let me give you an illustration. If a pastor is told to preach the word to the congregation, what might you think the congregation's responsibility would then be? To receive the word. If pastors are told to baptize, then what do you think the congregation's responsibility might be would be to be baptized. If pastors are told to to be careful with regard to people who are maligning and judging within the flock, then what do you think the flock's responsibility might be not to malign and judge? You, you see how this works so even though many of the commands are strictly are, are given to Timothy and to Titus. We can learn much about how we're to behave in the local church. Now, now there, there's plenty of information in the New Testament on how to behave in the universal church. And there's certainly overlap between the two. Certainly there's overlap. But for the next several months, we're going to study how we are to behave in the household of God. How we're to function within the local church. So it's my intention to cover these three letters in the order that they were written. We'll study First Timothy first, and then we'll move to Titus, and then we'll come back and study Second Timothy. Pauline authorship of these three letters was relatively unchallenged until the 18th century, and the arguments that someone other than Paul wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus are so unconvincing that I'm not going to take time tonight to refute those arguments. But uh, I do, I do want to at least let you know that we are going to do, do two things in the relatively near future with regard to the subject of canonicity now there's a there is a 28 minute uh, DVD that I'd like to show on, on one of our Wednesday night classes. We're going to actually go outside the box a little bit, do something just a tiny bit different from, I know it's tough, we're going to do something a tiny bit different from time to time, but I want to, I would love so much for you to hear this very short lecture that Norman Geisler has done on the su- subject of canonicity and how we got our Bible. And then in addition to that, in the not too distant future, Dr. Will Johnson is going to be doing a, a about a two-week special on the... Uh, specifically on the Da Vinci Code and and refuting the Da Vinci Code, I've already heard people in our own church really excited about seeing the film, not understanding that that's a bad film that's coming out. It's not a good thing. I know that Tom Hanks is in it, and he's my favorite actor, too. I know that Ron Howard made it, and he's my favorite director, too. But this is a bad film, and we need to be educated about it. And part of that educational process will be answering the question, why don't we accept the Gospel of Thomas? as canonical. So these are some issues that we will study in the future with regard to how we got our Bible, how how did the early church recognize which books should be in the Bible and which books should not be canonical, but that'll come a little bit down the road. I'm not going to do that tonight. Timothy's name means one who honors God. He first appears in Acts chapter 16 verses 1 through 3 and I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles there as we meet Timothy. The subject or the recipient of this first letter tonight, Acts chapter 16 and verses 1 through 3. Luke writes, and he came also, this is speaking of Paul, and he came also to Derby and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there, or a certain student was there, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek or a Gentile, and we're taking that, that he was a non-Christian christian And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy was a third generation Christian after his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And we'll read about Lois in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. The Apostle Paul, who was undoubtedly Timothy's spiritual father, and that's a term that we would give someone that had given the gospel to someone else, refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2. This doesn't mean that he's his physical offspring. He speaks of Timothy as his spiritual offspring. He had the privilege of giving him the gospel. And what an incredible privilege that is. When, when one is used of God to give the gospel to someone else, and you know that that event occurred through the ministry that God gave you, we know that God's the one that saves. We don't save. The Holy Spirit is the sovereign of evangelism. But what a, what a great and awesome privilege it is to be used of God. And Paul was the one that, it appears as though, converted Timothy, either on the first missionary journey or perhaps on the second. The son of a Greek or a Gentile father, Timothy was uncircumcised at the time of his conversion. However, when Paul decided to take Timothy with him on the remainder of the second missionary journey, he did have him circumcised so as not to hinder their missionary endeavors amongst the Jews. He is not saying that Timothy had to be circumcised in order to be saved. He didn't want anything hindering the ministry that was to come in the future. Timothy, again, was well-spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium, and he became Paul's companion and assistant on this second missionary journey and stays with him, as far as we can tell, all the way to the end of Paul's ministry. He traveled with Paul into Europe following the Macedonian vision, and then when Paul decided to go to Athens, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind at Berea to better establish the church there. That's from Acts chapter 17 in verse fourteen, a little bit later, uh, Timothy and Silas evidently join up with Paul after Paul has moved from Athens down to Corinth. And then Timothy next appears with Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. So there's a gap in time. there's a there's a gap in the tape there as to what happened to Timothy during those uh, those months. but he we meet him again in Ephesus on the third missionary journey all the way into Acts chapter nineteen and verse twenty two from where Paul sends Erastus and Timothy into Macedonia ahead of himself. In the last mention of Timothy in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he was included in the list of goodwill ambassadors who were to accompany Paul to Jerusalem with the offering for the Christian Jews, the poor in Jerusalem. Timothy is often mentioned in the letters of Paul. His name is included in the introductions to 2 Corinthians and to Philippians and the Colossians and the 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and also in the introduction to Philemon he was in Corinth on the second missionary journey when Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians he was there at Ephesus on the third missionary journey when Paul wrote 2nd Corinthians and in Rome during Paul's first imprisonment when he wrote Philippians and Colossians, and Philemon, and Ephesians. He's mentioned in the introductions of First and Second Timothy as the recipient of these two pastoral epistles that we now begin to study. In the closing words of Romans chapter 16, verse 21, that we just studied uh, uh, very recently, two weeks ago, Timothy is listed along with the others who send well wishes to the believers in Rome. In First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 16, verse 10, Paul speaks words of praise for Timothy as he sends him with a message to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 119, Timothy is named along with Paul and Silas as men who were telling others about Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 23, the author, and I don't believe that it was Paul, but, but the author of that, the human author, tells us that Timothy has been released from prison. And he hopes to come with Timothy to visit the readers of this letter. We're left to wonder about the details of that imprisonment. The book of Acts doesn't tell us about that. And we have no other details. Paul put Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. And wrote to him two pastoral letters addressed with his name to help him perform that responsible task. Now here's what I want to say about Timothy in conclusion. There are a lot of people that talk a lot of trash about Timothy. The only person I can think of that has more trash talked to about him that's a biblical character New Testament wise that was a servant of the Lord than Timothy is Peter. And I'm going to tell you what, you would do well as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ not to not to knock either one of those guys. You would be making a huge mistake to do that. Yes, Peter denied our Lord. Yes, he was impulsive. But also, yes, he's one of the ones that got he's the only one that got out of the boat as we studied on Sunday. Peter was used of God in an incredible way, in a way that very few people have ever been used of God. And don't we all have our flaws? Now, Timothy was not Peter. Timothy wasn't Paul. But then as I look through the New Testament, who was Paul or Peter? Leave Peter out of it. Who Who, Who else was Paul? There's only one Apostle Paul. And it's totally unfair to compare Timothy and his personality to the personality of the Apostle Paul. Yes, Timothy needed encouragement. Yes, ne- Timothy needed exhortation. But you show me one servant of the Lord that hasn't needed encouragement, that hasn't needed exhortation from time to time. No, Timothy is no lightweight. Timothy was left in charge of one of the most important churches in the ancient world. Paul trusted Timothy. Timothy. No, Timothy wasn't um, the drill sergeant that Titus was. There were times in Timothy's ministry where he was abused by congregations, probably because of his youth. But Paul exhorts him here, but the the whole purpose of these epistles is not to malign Timothy. If that's the framework that you look at these epistles through, if that's the window that you glance through, you're going to miss the beauty of what's going on here. These are not maligning Timothy epistles. What is said to Timothy could be said to all of us to stand firm in the faith. So let us take that lesson from it. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders toward the end of his third missionary journey, he warned them about false teachers who would arise in their midst. And this is the situation that evidently had happened as Paul writes this letter to Timothy in Ephesus. Evidently, Hymenaeus and Alexander were two of those wolves that Paul had warned about in his farewell message to the Ephesians. Paul alludes to others that have come in in this letter in, in verses 3-11, through 11, in chapter 4, verses 1-5, through 5, chapter 6, verses 3-10. through 10. But the very situation that Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about as he was making that very dramatic farewell to them, the very situation that happened, and now he's left Timothy in charge of that church, and he's warning Timothy not to let this go any further than it already has. You've got to throw these people out. Now, if Caesar released Paul from prison in Rome in, in the early 60s, I think probably sometime right around 62, uh, right in that neighborhood, Paul probably writes this epistle, this first letter to Timothy, shortly after that. Maybe in the mid-60s, maybe 63-ish, 64-ish. Paul's reference to his going from Ephesus to Macedonia suggests that he may have been in Macedonia when he writes 1 Timothy. Nevertheless, we don't really have any other references to guide us as to when this letter was written. But we know that it was written toward the end of Paul's ministry. If Paul was executed in either 67 or 68 AD at the hands of Nero, then this letter would have been written around four to five years before the Apostle Paul's death. Certainly one of the last letters that he wrote. I believe it went First Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy was certainly the last of the Pauline epistles. Now what is the purpose? What is the purpose not only of First and Second Timothy, but also of Titus? What's the purpose of all of the pastoral epistles? Paul writes them to shepherds, or to pastors, of churches outlining pastoral duties. Now, the main pastoral duty might surprise you. It certainly would surprise most pastors in our country today, I'm afraid. And the main pastoral duty was to defend sound doctrine and to maintain sound discipline. To defend sound doctrine, and to maintain sound discipline. I don't know where we went wrong, but somewhere along the line, we did. And I'm not going to make excuses for pastors around the United States, but I think I have an explanation for it. Sometimes I hear that... that, uh, This particular pastor doesn't teach the word. This particular pastor doesn't teach the word. I know more theology than that pastor. I know a whole lot more than that pastor. Be careful when you say that because chances are you don't. But just because a man doesn't teach the word doesn't, doesn't mean he doesn't know the word. But there are plenty of pastors in our country today that are sitting there wanting to preach the word to their flocks. And the particular ministry philosophy of that church restricts them from doing so. You might remember, some of you haven't heard this story. My kids tell me I, I need to get new illustrations. but uh, <laughs> I know you hadn't all heard this one. But but when I was in seminary, I used to give a, a, a friend of mine a ride home uh, every day. He didn't have an automobile. And, and uh, he was an assistant associate pastor at a very large church up in Dallas. And the the board came to him and asked him to go behind the pastor's back hold the congregation, and find out how long the the congregation wanted that pastor to preach each and every Sunday morning. And he's telling me this as I'm driving him home. And I'm scratching my head and saying, you're not going to do that, are you? Or at least you're going to talk to the pastor about it first. And he says, I don't know what to do. The board's the one running the church. They're the ones that told me not to tell the pastor about this. I said, you know he's going to fire you. Well, I think the board will protect me. Oh, right, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, anyway, he did it. He went behind the pastor's back, pulled the congregation. You know what it came out to? I think it was either 17 minutes or 19 minutes. That's what they wanted. Then the pastor was presented with that information. You can imagine how well he took that. You know, finding out that the congregation had been pulled behind his back by his associate, and it didn't turn out well. And then that was the time frame that was forced upon him. This pastor wanted to preach the word. But the flock wouldn't have it. So it's not entirely the pastor's fault, although they have to bear a great portion of the blame because we have to grow some pastoral courage one of these days to be able to stand up and say, no, that's not right. The the shepherd can't take take dictation from the sheep as to how that pastor's going to shepherd. It's not in anybody's best interest. And so that's what Paul has to teach, both Timothy and Titus. There are things going on in Ephesus and in Crete, where uh, Titus ministered that are not right. Just like there are things going on in the United States today that are not right. But that's the last I'll defend of my pastoral brethren. But, but I, I do have to say, I know many of them that would love to preach the word. They would love nothing better than that. And they have to fight for opportunities to do that in their churches. Somewhere we've gone really, really uh, awry. So the first purpose is to encourage pastors to defend sound doctrine and to maintain sound discipline. So there's more than just learning the word. There's doing something with it. It's more than just content. It's conviction with regard to that content that Paul exhorts both Timothy and Titus towards. But more than just pastoral duties... Or in view here. So, lest you think that you're going to have the next several months off and, and there will be no, uh, no uh, doctrinal daggers that come your way. No, there will be. These letters are for the entire church and speak of church life, how we're to function within the local church. You, me. And everybody else. So this is this is going to be a fascinating study. I'm just just curious. I, I know that if you've been at Pine Valley lately, you haven't. But uh, has anybody studied the pastoral epistles within the last five years? Okay, just a few, just a handful, and that's not unusual at all, because ordinarily, as pastors, we hesitate to teach the pastoral epistles, thinking they're just for ourselves. And I'll tell you what I do. When I've had a bad day in ministry, and it happens once, you know, every ten years or so, you have a, you have a rough day in ministry. You know what I do? You know where I do my devotional reading? I go back to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And I'll sit in my chair with my lamp there right by the front door, and I'll read those, and my heart is calmed because I remember then what my function in the body is. Sometimes that's what will get us out of fellowship, as we start trying to, to function in a way that we're not gifted, or that wasn't our responsibility in the first place. So they do uh, speak to pastors, but these letters will also speak right straight to your heart. Now, these epistles are quite different from what we've just finished studying. The book of Romans, along with the letter to the Ephesians church, are, are probably the two most theological letters in the New Testament. Hebrews is right up there with them. They're the, the perhaps the most theological. Now, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are amongst the most practical of all the letters in the New Testament. So you'll, you'll see quite a bit of a change. We, we spent almost a year, maybe even more, on the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Heavy, heavy theology, but Paul had to lay down that foundation so we would understand what he said in chapters 12. Through sixteen, And now, at the end, Paul has already taught Timothy the doctrine. Now, there are certain doctrinal issues here, believe me. There are some real hot topic doctrinal issues. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Yeah, there's going to be some hot topics in here that need explanation, particularly in, in view of our culture today. There are, there are salvation issues here. There are um, doctrine of election issues here. There are certain doctrinal issues that are a part of this epistle but it's not primarily doctrinal it's primarily practical Paul is assuming we know a whole lot of things by the time we get to these epistles now I hope that assumption is true I'm looking out over people tonight that I think should be able to handle first and second Timothy and Titus you have enough theology to know what's going on here and now it's time that we take that theology from the content stage and move to the conviction stage we don't want to stay at the conviction stage, we need to move then to the communication stage. And we don't stay at communication, we then need to move to the consistency stage. So it's about church life, how we should live within the church. But it's primarily practical rather than theological, although there is theology in this. The emphasis lies on the defense, uh, um, not so much on the defense of doctrine or its explanation, But it it, um, stresses the application of that doctrine that Paul assumes that we already know. Now, the message of 1 Timothy, more specifically, 1 Timothy deals with two aspects of the subject of the church and the order in church life, the life of the church and the leadership of the church. So the first letter that we study speaks of the life of the church and the leadership of the church. The life of the church and the leadership of the church. The second epistle that we'll study, Titus, elaborates more on the leadership of the church angle. So Timothy is going to speak of the life of the church and the leadership of the church. Titus speaks mostly of the leadership of the church. And then 2 Timothy speaks mostly of the life of the church. Okay, do you get it? 1 Timothy is going to give us the overview. Titus is going to focus in on the leadership aspect, and then 2 Timothy is going to focus in on the life aspect of the church. But all three will speak of all of those subjects to a greater or lesser degree. In 1 Timothy, Paul teaches that the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth to the world. Have you ever heard of the Great Commission? It's our responsibility not to sit on our tails, but to go and make disciples, baptizing them and, and teaching them to obey all that, that I have commanded you, our Lord says. This is the function of the local church, to proclaim God's truth in the world. Now, Paul also teaches that the function of church leaders is to expound God's truth in the church. Now, do you see the distinction that I'm making? The function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in to the world. The function of the leadership in the local church is to proclaim God's truth to you. You see, Paul tells us in, in the book of Ephesians that it's, it's uh, part of the function of the local church and the leadership of the local church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ever heard that phrase? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If a pastor or associate pastor or youth pastor or music minister, whoever it may be, if they're doing all the ministry in a church, then something's wrong with their ministry. Because their, their job is to equip you to go to the hospital and to give that person the gospel. Their job is to equip you to teach that Sunday school class. Or to go to the prison and to teach the prisoners. Or to teach your kids about Jesus Christ. You see, if it's just one or two people, or three or four, or a dozen people, no matter how large the church is, if it's just a handful that are doing it, the effect is going to be minimal, no matter how powerful of an expositor that preacher may be, or may not be. But if that, if that preacher, if that teacher can teach hundreds what he knows, and then they can follow through with the same conviction that he has about that material, do you see how it explodes? Wasn't it uh, James Kennedy in Florida that, that I believe he was the one that coined the, coined the idea of evangelism explosion? Well, the reason it was exploding was because they were teaching people how to go out and spread God's word. He wasn't doing it. Of course, he, he had incredible radio and television programs. He had, a, he had more of an audience than most of us do. But the reason it exploded is because individuals were talking to their neighbors and to their friends to their co-workers about Christ places that most pastors couldn't even begin to to get into now again this is this is what Paul teaches the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world the function of church leaders is to proclaim God's word to the church you see what's going on All right. the local church is an instrument God designed to support and display his truth. Every individual believer is a light in a dark world. And God has called us to let our light shine among men. Now that's, that's a call for all of us individually. But we don't live out the Christian life as individuals. There's a certain aspect of our spiritual life that is lived individually before God. But there's a much larger aspect of our spiritual life that's lived collectively before God. The whole body's not a head. The whole body's not a hand or a foot. The, 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 the eyes can't tell the feet. I have no need of you. We all need each other in corporate Christianity. That's the way the spiritual gifts work. And a healthy church will have a maximum number of spiritual gifts working. Now, some of this is going to be new for you. And I make no apologies for that. I'm going to teach it the way it is here in, this, in these epistles. And then we'll just let the chips fall where they may. It may be something that you like, maybe something you want to continue with. Maybe something you say "The heck with. I'm not ready for that. I would prefer to go live in a cabin in Montana and listen to my tape on the front porch and have nobody bother me. Now, some of us think that way. The reason I can be so vivid with that is I used to think that way. I used to think if God would give me a million, two million, actually I got up to 30 billion before I stopped it. <laughs> That's just me. I was thinking big. If he would do that, then, the, then what I would do for the rest of my life is that I would move to Montana I would buy me a cabin on one of those rivers up there in the mountains and I would get my Bible and some study material and a tape recorder and I would listen to my tape, study my Bible on the front porch for the rest of my life. Well, guess what God didn't do? <laughs> he didn't give me the $30 billion. He didn't give me the $1 or $2 million either because he knew what I'd do with it. And he knew that that would have been a wasted life for me, just like it would be for you we're not here to satisfy our own desires we're here we're here to serve the lord jesus christ now these epistles are going to exhort that toward or exhort us toward that now there are some implications that paul will make with regard to the purpose of the local church and as we study first and second timothy and titus or in order first timothy titus and second timothy we will be studying some of the systematic theology of the, the study of the ecclesiology. So we'll, we'll, study, we'll study the doctrines of the church in a, in a broader way than what are just reported here. And there's a lot to that. You'll find there's a lot of controversy with regard to the doctrines in ecclesiology. There's a lot of controversy with regard to church government. Which form or forms of church government is legitimate? Who should be a pastor? Who's qualified and who perhaps has been disqualified from that particular role? controversial issues, issues that I'm going to tell you ahead of time. I'm going to ask for your objectivity, because I've got to teach it as it is. And I make no apology for that, because I've never told you it's my message, it's God's message. And if I go off-message, guess who gets spanked? Moi. And I don't intend to get, i got already got enough spankings in my life, I don't intend to get any more for for not teaching the message of the Word of God. I look at it this way. I've got this little parable, this little fable, or this little short story that I've... uh, developed in my own brain about this. I look at it like a messenger for the king. Then the king decides one day, I'm going to raise taxes. So he pulls a messenger in and says, I want you to go out to the people, and I want you to tell them that I'm raising their taxes. So the messenger says, okay, yes, sir, I'm going to go out and tell them that. So he goes to the first city or little little township, and he says, hear ye, hear ye, I speak for the king, and the the king has now said that he will raise your taxes. Raise our taxes? What do you mean he's going to raise our taxes? Okay, I'm just telling you what he said. Then you go to the next city. And you say, hear ye, hear ye. Uh, The king has decided to raise taxes. And a tomato hits you upside the head. So you scoot out of that city real quickly. Finally, you go to the third township. Hear ye, hear ye. Uh, Listen, I don't know why. I don't agree with him. But... He said that he's going to have to consider sometime in the future, if it's okay with you guys, he's going to have to consider maybe raising some revenues by virtue of maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe your tax is going to have to go up. I don't know. I don't agree. I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. How about that? Okay? And then I picture it as the guy turns around and here's the king standing there. And he's saying, uh, last time I looked, that's not what I told you to tell him. You are apologizing for what I told you to tell him. I don't think so. And in my little parable, that servant would lose his head. You see, pastors don't originate the message. They defend it, they proclaim it, but they're not the originator of it. It's not Bruce's message. It's not Paul's message. I'm talking about the pastor Paul. It's not Will Johnston's message. It's not Norman Geisler's message. It's God's message, and it's uh, coming upon us to proclaim it accurately. So we will study the doctrine of ecclesiology as best as we can from the scriptures, and we'll see what, Timothy, uh, what Paul says to Timothy about this. So there are some, some key points in Timothy. The first one is that the church must be careful to present an unchanged gospel. If you remember your study of Galatians, that was a big issue for those churches as well. They had changed the gospel that Paul taught them. And Paul brings a hammer down on their head for doing that. There must be in the church no majoring in minors. No claim to higher knowledge and no distortion of the truth. In this epistle, Paul warns Timothy that all those are threats to the purity of God's word. Sometimes we... We do major in the most minor things, and we miss the big things in Scripture. We get, we get so concerned with, with something, in, in a, and I'll be talking with somebody or, or corresponding on an email, and, 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 and I'll just kind of write back, is, is there another question behind this one? Is there, some, is there something that you're driving at? Because this particular question, I'm not really sure, is worth either one of our time. It, it concerns no major doctrine, so it's almost a point of curiosity. Paul says you're not to major on these minor things. You're not to have fights within the church over what color the wall should be or or what the thorn in the flesh was in 2 Corinthians. We don't know. We shouldn't have a fight in the church over who wrote the book of Hebrews from a human perspective. Now, on the other hand, if someone wants to introduce a false gospel into the church, then let's duke it. Let's take the gloves off, let's go outside, and let's duke it out theologically. But some things are not worth fighting over. And that's what Paul is going to tell Timothy. These false teachers had come in. They had introduced certain things that were getting people to fighting and arguing that were not the main things. As Gary Horton says, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing and not major in minors. The second aspect that Paul will speak of in the local, with regard to the local church is that worship must be Unceasing. As I read the book of Revelation, I see that in, 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 the, uh, in the heavenly state, in our eternal state, it will be one continuous worship service. First time I heard that, I thought, man, that's going to be kind of boring. I'll be honest with you. I did. Because a lot of worship services I've been to are boring, quite frankly. You mean me I'm going to have to sit through that for eternity? But know when our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be nothing more enjoyable than worshiping him 24-7. Now, there will be other things that we do as well, and I'm sure, but we'll be worshiping him while we do those things. You see, it will be, it'll be continual focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's the way heaven is to be, why, why isn't that the way it is here? We think of worship as that one hour that we spend on Sunday morning, you're worshiping now. I hope you realize that too, so at least we can add a second hour. How about Sunday morning and Wednesday night and then there's Sunday night, so we got three hours a week that we worship well that 's three hours a week that we worship corporately, but I hope you realize that you 're going to go to work tomorrow, and I hope you 'll be worshiping all day your Your work should be an aspect of worship when you go to the coffee shop and and uh, have a cup of coffee with your friends and discuss things, that, that is, if your focus is on Jesus Christ, that's an aspect of worship. When you go out hunting with your buddies, that ought to be an aspect of worship, but individual rather than corporately. Third, the local church must persevere in ministry without failing. Now, if this is going to happen, the leadership of the local church need to motivate those who are under their leadership. And there's no way to motivate when a minister is living themselves in hypocrisy. One thing people can see through faster than any other human flaw is hypocrisy. Now, no human communicator of the word is perfect. So that's where I think some people get into trouble. They try to present themselves as that, and then people see a flaw and then they completely tear that person down because they had a flaw. Well, I'm going to tell you, I've told you for the last 12 years, I'm not perfect. I don't brag about that. You see, we don't, know, we don't need to go too far the other way and brag about the fact that you're not perfect. But that's, that's honesty. And if you don't believe it, ask my wife in the back. She'll be happy to, to fill you in, I'm sure. Or if not that, ask my kids. They'll be, they'll be happy to fill you in. You know, in a lot of, in a lot of ministries now, they're bringing the, the wife in and interviewing her as part of the selection process. And they, because they want to know the truth, <laughs> or they bring the kids in, they'll interview them. But no, no pastor is perfect. The, these these pastoral epistles don't require perfection. Now they do require something that's a high standard. That the pastor should be above reproach. We'll talk about that when the time comes. But if we're to persevere, it's got to start with the leadership. Those who are up front proclaiming the word of God have got to be living the word of God. There can't just be content. There has to be conviction with regard to that content. Or it's a house of cards. And it will all fall apart. Personal example is every bit as important as persuasive explanation. Now, there are some implications of the truth that the purpose of the church leader is to expound God's truth to the saints. Let me give you three. First, the leader must be absolutely loyal to the truth. Timothy is going to be told in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word. It's been the motto of Dallas Seminary since 1924. Preach the word. Second, the leadership's behavior should be consistent. The leadership's behavior should be consistent. The leadership must have a deep commitment to fulfilling The purpose that God has set forth and must be a good example, not just to his family, but to his congregation as well. And third, in his personal life, church leadership, the pastoral leadership of a church, must persevere individually. For a pastor can talk all day long and exhort a congregation to perseverance or to holy living, but if they're not doing it themselves it will fall on deaf ears. He must continue to let God's truth sit in judgment on his own life. As he studies a passage, he should never study a passage to teach it to someone else. He should study a passage to learn that passage and to let that passage affect him first. And then it can be preached with conviction, not just with slickness. We've had enough slickness Already. In our political lives, it's difficult to tell when somebody's telling the truth anymore. We have enough of that. We don't need it in our pulpits. People appreciate honesty. And that's what the pastor should proclaim. And that's what Paul tells Timothy. Now, by way of application, let me point out a couple of things that the church needs to watch out for. And then a couple of things that the church leader should be aware of. They're very similar the local church, Paul warns in this epistle, should be of false doctrine. Okay, that's, that's first and foremost. That's, that'll kill a church to allow false doctrine in. And by this I mean any doctrine that deviates from the essential teaching of the faith. There will always be areas of disagreement between theologians. If you pull out five commentaries, on the book of on the letter to Timothy and look at the first chapter. You can have five learned scholars that may have slightly different views about a particular aspect of the text. That's not what Paul is talking about with regard to false doctrine. False doctrines are the big things. Be careful with the H word. You know the H word, the heretic word. I hear some people called heretics that are not even close to being heretics. And you know who looks bad when that happens? We do. Be careful throwing that term around. Just because one has a difference of opinion about, about the, an aspect of a verb or, or, uh, or, or some things that Paul will consider more minor issues does not make that an issue for us to, um, to uh, split over. So we should beware of false doctrine. Second, the church should beware, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, of a failure in prayer. The church should beware of a failure in prayer. And he puts almost as much emphasis on this as he does uh, to be beware of false doctrine. A failure in prayer will hinder our witness to the world and our own growth. Now the dangers to the church leadership do correspond. There should be no failure in a pastor's doctrine or his duty or his diligence. So the church as a whole should beware of false doctrine. The church as a whole should beware of a failure in prayer. And the leadership of the church should make sure that there is no failure with regard to doctrine, duty, or diligence. If we know and respond to God's truth, we will be free from those influences that would hinder us from fulfilling our ministry. Teaching is life-changing. Not only to the extent that people understand it and appreciate its importance, but also to the extent that the teacher of that theology illustrates it. We can be completely orthodox and effective in our methods of of presentation. However, if our life does not harmonize with what we say, then the listeners will reject it. Now that's true with me standing before you tonight in this pulpit. It's also true in the way that you live your lives individually before the Lord, before your neighbors, before your co-workers, before your friends. You can speak the truth all day long. But if you're not living the truth, to paraphrase another place, you become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's become a harsh noise to people. And people will run from you when they see you coming. Because, again, people can spot hypocrisy a mile away. So Paul will teach us here in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and in 2 Timothy that content is extremely important, that we should be well, beware of false content, but it can't stop there. That is expected. God has revealed himself in grace to his, to his creation. That is something we should thank God for. We have his complete and coherent message in written form. People have died so that we could have, people have had to make great sacrifices so that we'd have this. Content is vital. We never apologize for content, but it can't stop there. We all must not only have content in our souls, but we must be convicted with regard to the truth of that content so that it changes our lives. This is not something that is forced. This is something that will happen naturally through the Spirit's ministry in our life if we will get the content and if we'll believe it and live it. But then it can't stop there either because the function of the local church is to proclaim God's word into the, to a lost and dying world. So it has to move to communication. Not only content, but conviction. Not only conviction, but communication. And then finally, not only communication, but consistency. People will, will appreciate consistency. They understand our flaws. They understand that we're not perfect. They understand our failures. They want honesty. They want honest answers to honest questions. And this is no light matter. People's eternal destiny hangs in the balance. God is the sovereign of evangelism. Now, are you the kind of Christian that God can use? Are you one of those ones that he's going to have to bypass and send someone who is in need of the gospel to someone else? I told you this was going to be convicting. And over the next several months, we'll unpack these things. We'll see how Paul writes to Timothy and Titus both. I love Second Timothy. Second Timothy, uh, re, Timothy reports the dying words of the Apostle Paul. It's very poignant. But before we get there, we've got a lot to learn, a lot to be convicted about, a lot to communicate, and a lot to live with consistency.